Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of The New Standard. And as always, joining me, my partner in crime, Neil Kulong, in a balmy 28-degree Minneapolis. What's up, Neil? We are loving the weather here today. Absolutely loving it. Um, otherwise, Lance, it's uh, conference championship week, which is obviously not very much fun without your Pittsburgh Steelers in it. But at the same time, it is a big week as far as transactional news goes. And that's really what um, the bread and butter of the NFL is beyond the, the team level. It's what teams are doing. It's how teams are improving. Uh, and there's a lot of action. We're going to get into that. I'm uh, I'm in a great mood. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I mean, you feeling you you feeling all frisky. It's so warm, you know, twenty eight degrees. You know, you might go outside with your banana hammock on and go have a good time. Wow! <laughs> you know what? There's an idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down. Let's piss the neighbors off. <laughs> yes, sir. Right, new in town and piss the neighbors off. Before we get into the show, as always, you can catch the program on YouTube by doing a search for Lance Williams and the New Standard. And the show is available on all platforms, podcast platforms, Google, Spotify, all the platforms that you use to get your podcast, do a search for the New Standard and Pittsburgh Steelers. But let's jump right in it. And the first thing I wanted to talk about was, in Steeler news, was the big retirement of Keith Butler but not just the retirement of Keith Butler. I wanted to dig into the little scuttlebutt that started in Steeler Nation because Keith Butler told a secret that really wasn't a secret that Mike Tomlin calls the defensive signals. Now, before you break that down, in-game, I should say. Now, before you break that down, Neil, here's my thing with Steeler Nation in, in terms of that little secret which, as Melvin said, and big up to everybody on the chat, that he spilled the beans. The Well, the coffee had spilled. The beans had spilled on the floor already. But here's my thing with Steeler Nation and the disingenuousness of Steeler Nation. There was a time when many in Steeler Nation said, what does Tomlin do? All it looks like he just does is carry a clipboard and give motivational speeches. So Steeler Nation complained about that. Then there was, now, he's taking and assuming too much control. If he were a confident and competent leader, he would delegate some of those responsibilities to someone else and be more of a CEO type. Now, I know this is the nature of fandom, but man, is it frustrating if you're a professional football coach and listening to Mike Tannenbaum's comments with Ross Tucker when he was describing some of the duties of coaches this is just one of the things in a long set of things that coaches manage depending on how they do it media so on and so forth but but break down actually what happens in game and your and my thoughts on the disingenuousness of Steeler Nation just, just break down what happens in game in this whole mystery of play calling Okay, I, I want to put it this way to start off, because I think this is where the disconnect usually comes from. And I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not trying to be sarcastic or a smart ass with it. Mike Tomlin does not plug his controller into a console and play the game himself. Okay. As a video game player, you are a one man everything. And I, I think that's what this culture kind of, it, it, not literally, but they have that impression in their mind. 
management is delegation. Management is accountability. It's progress. It's measurement. The head coach is responsible for the overall production of the entire team. It does not segment away from the head coach. Okay. Tomlin's background, oddly enough, people seem to forget this. He was a wide receiver in college. Okay. He didn't play defense. They learn the game as they are developing as coaches. He eventually went down the defensive track, defensive backs coach, defensive coordinator, head coach. In that, he feels he is his highest and best use for probably the, the, the play calling stuff is on the defensive side. So along with that, they have a defensive coordinator. All right. So there are two separate actions that are going on here. There's in-game play calling and there is uh, the week of preparation, setting the game plan, all of that. Mike Tomlin is just involved with the defensive game plan as he is the offensive game plan. Why? Because he's the head coach of the team. He is the one the media speak to afterwards. He's the one getting paid the most money. He's the guy that Art Rooney is calling after a game to ask him why something happened. Not the coordinators, not the and position he's the coaches. One, and he's the one that's going to get fired first. Go right. ahead, Nick. And the rest of them get fired along with him. He is the man, literally. It, it, it's, it is just that simple. But when you get into play calling, what that tends to mean is the co- the head coach who, frankly, I, I, I would just guess off the top of my head, half of the coaches in the NFL, take out the, the new hires, half of the coaches in the NFL this past season called one side of the ball. And the ones that didn't, there's probably a specific reason for that. Each team is, is going to do things a little bit differently. One thing with the Steelers to always remember, they don't really want to expose their inner workings a whole lot, Okay we don't have good insight into who's calling the defensive plays because they don't talk about it. Tomlin, if you ask him what he's going to tell you is it's a group effort. He won't tell you who is actually making the call, but that illustrates the whole point. It's not just one person. He's saying I am responsible ultimately for what happens. If I'm calling the plays or not, I am still responsible for that. But the point is it's a collaborative effort that starts the day that probably maybe an hour after their last game, your quality control coaches, which is your grunts, your, your lowest end guy are breaking down film and they are merging it with breaking down film of the game. They just played along with what their opponents have done. They've been working on that. Your advanced department, your advanced scouts is looking at the opponent. They're putting together a package of film ahead of the game that they're currently playing. They're working on the next week. So Tomlin can come in and immediately sit down and start preparing for the next opponent. Tomlin's going to watch that film. Coaches watch whatever film that they need and they get together based on Tomlin's direction and decide what they're going to do next. Now, typically you review your internal stuff first, the day after the game, players come in, they watch film while it's fresh in their mind. They get, you know, whatever rehab that they might need. That's typically on a Monday. Tuesday, the players are off. That's when the coaches go through what they call install. They're going to spend basically 18 straight hours going over film and selecting what they know philosophically uh, from physical plays, everything like that, what they want to put into the practice plan in this week for the next opponent. They don't have a whole lot of time to do that. So Tuesday is a huge day for them. That's when the coordinator tends to be the one who's kind of calling everything. All right. They're going through what they need to do 
as, as a whole unit. They're talking to each position group and saying, we want to do this this week. Lance, the example I gave you was, and this is a crude, simplistic example, but Tomlin is going to review the film of their next game. Say it's the Carolina Panthers. They're playing the Panthers the next week. Tomlin sees stuff in the Panthers offense that makes him feel like the Steelers would be successful if they blitzed more often than they usually do. He's giving that direction to Butler, who is then drawing that up. Whether they have the play or whether it's a, a wrinkle or a variation of something, they're putting that plan together. They go through all of it, everything that, that comes with that, review every bit of film that they have, and come up with a, a set of, in, on the defensive side, coverages, assignments, blitzes, things like that, that they'll call in the game. So they've installed what they're going to do for that opponent. Wednesday, the players are back. They practice those things. They have three days to do that, two-hour-long practices each, and meetings. So you're not physically doing a ton of reps with all of this. You get ahead to the final walkthrough, which is Saturday. You're going over things. Other things might have come up. You might have thrown this play out and added that. You're, you review all of that. Again, that's kind of the coordinator's job. The coordinator is the one going through all that at the head coach's discretion. So the head coach is in the meeting. They're adding their two cents to whatever it is, but the coordinator tends to be the one that's teaching it and is responsible for the teaching of it. You put all that together on Sunday. Whoever it is that's actually calling the play in whatever minute, it is important. I'm not saying that it's not, but they're not coming up with stuff on the fly. You can't do that. You don't have enough time. And you have to keep in mind, you're asking 11 guys to do something highly athletic and highly physical in a very short amount of time. And if one of them is off, the play is going to fail. Yeah, it's it has coordinated to be, choreography. Yeah, you know, it, they it's have literally what it is, choreography. violent choreography. Yeah. And it's really hard to execute that 65 times in a game with very little prep time, relatively speaking. So the coordinator's job is far more on preparing the plays that they're going to run than calling them in the moments of the game. All right. Now, there is a piece to that. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But when you hear this is a great play call, don't think of, hey, I know I'll do this right now. Think of three days of practices. Think of dozens of hours of film review. Think of scouts that found these things out. That's what led to the play that was just called. The situation in which they call it. Yes, it is important. I'm not saying that it's not, but there is a lot that comes with it. And it's not a video game. You don't just pick off a sheet and go with whatever is there. They have a set plan of what they want to do in what situations. Plan itself doesn't always work. I mean, in fact, usually it doesn't. It, it's hard to get all that right. And a team can very easily not do what you expect them to do. That's the art of it. That's the difficulty. And that is why coordinators, play callers make a couple million dollars a year in the NFL. But the head coach is ultimately the one who's watching over all that. Now, Lance, what's the point of everything that I just said? If Mike Tomlin is the one calling the defense, then he's the one calling the defense. Keith Butler was intimately involved in every step of that process. Exactly. We know that logically because he wouldn't be there if they didn't need him. So he has a role. Also, it could be Tomlin is calling in this situation. If there's something he needs to go do or address, Butler is going to call. Maybe it's first half, you're going to do this. The second half, I'm going to take over because of this or that or the other thing. There's a billion different reasons why you might do that. They, Tomlin yeah. is, the, the Steelers in general are a collaborative team. They keep their numbers small and they stay very tight. They don't leak stuff to the media very often. 
those types of things are done collaboratively. And the general manager is intimately involved in all this as well. So it's a group effort. They decide together collectively what they're going to do. My point generally is it, it is not it's not completely arbitrary who's calling the plays. But Tomlin, from what I know and what I've been told, and this may not even be true, we won't know that unless they come out and flat out say it. Tomlin has been calling the plays since since LeBeau left. And with that, they hired Butler not to call plays, but it, it, at one point he still had the linebackers coach title in, in his job. He was he was still coaching players up to the end directly. He was still involved with the position group. There are certain things that the linebackers would be doing that the, the uh, defensive line wouldn't need to know or it, it wouldn't concern what they're doing. You can make separate calls for separate people. So you could have two people calling in stuff. It's not on defense. It's not as simple as X 90 razor go. You know, there, there are coverages that come with it that are different from everything else that's going on. It's not always one synchronous thing. Does that make sense? Or am I rambling too much? Yeah, no, no. What I think is, and I, what, I think what you've illustrated is that it's collaborative. It's not rain man in a, you know, rain man or the guy from uh, what was the movie? Uh, where they went to Vegas and he chipped his tooth. Uh, I forget that movie. Uh, Hangover. It's not Hangover, Hangover yeah, where yeah. the guy was seeing digits like Rain Man in his head <laughs> and he's putting it all together. The wolf Pack. You know, the Wolf Pack, exactly. It's not, it's not one guy playing a video game, is my point. It's, it's you know, not, they have to practice stuff of what they're doing. And that is a collaborative effort with a dozen coaches, a dozen scouts a general manager on down to a guy literally getting paid nothing to, to review film for hours at a time. And I've also heard that even game day is choreographed and practiced yeah. um, in camp and stuff during games, oh, like yeah. how they're going to actually do it, how they're mm-hmm. going to do the 40 seconds, who's going to send this and who's going to send that. Yep. When are we going to send the play in? How much time is going to be left? And they're doing that and they're rehearsing that. And so, but also I think ultimately it, it, if, if, you're, you know, it's like what Bill Parcell said, you know, if you want me to cook the dinner, you know, let me shop for the groceries. And at the end of the day, you know, if your name is ultimately on it and you're going to get all the blame, you want a lot of the control. And so yep. also yep. it's, it's a good way to protect your staff as well. So all of the blame can fall on you because there could be times in games where he doesn't call all the plays. He's coaching the linebackers. He's doing very, this. He's coaching very the likely, quarterbacks. In fact, that happens. You know, he's doing a lot of other things, and Butler is coaching, is calling the plays, and the calls are being signaled in in another place. And he might be saying, okay, we want to do this, do this, do this. Remember this in the plan. Let's do this. But I think a lot was made to do about nothing, and I think that is – It's a it's a rare know, reveal from an organization that doesn't right. really talk about that stuff very often. Right. Let's shift reels into – and hopefully we wish uh, Keith Butler a happy retirement. I think Keith Butler did a well of a job as coordinator and with the linebackers. Um, I think he did a well of a job. I think that, you know, two decades. And um, again, I think the thought is Terrell Austin is um, going to be the next coordinator. I know that they reached out to um, a gentleman from the Giants. What's your thoughts on that? Is that, is talking to the guy from the Giants just dotting your I's, crossing your T's, or is Terrell Austin going to be the next guy? It, it's it's interesting. Um, I recall having these same conversations last year when they were in the same boat, except uh, it was Matt Canada 
who was going to replace uh, Randy Fickner. And it was obvious during the season, Randy Fickner wasn't coming back. We, we just knew that uh, they needed a, a, a new direction. Canada was assumed to be the guy. And we always thought that Canada interviewed for the Dolphins open head, uh, open offensive coordinator position. The Steelers did not hire uh, a Fickner's replacement immediately. They waited a bit. Um, I don't recall if they interviewed anybody for the offensive coordinator position. I'm not, I don't think that they did. They have to now though. Okay. The key thing, um, an extension of the Rooney rule, coordinator positions have to include an interview with at least one minority candidate as well. Patrick Graham is the uh, defensive coordinator for the Giants, kind of in lame duck status right now. He's under contract, but the Giants are hiring a new coach. We're not sure who that is as of right now. So the Steelers are looking at uh, potentially somebody who'd be on the market. You get permission, you talk to him. Um, I've heard nothing but good things about him as well. I could see why they'd be interested in talking to him. Chris Richard, um, a defensive backs coach with the Saints. The Saints had a great defensive team. Dennis Allen is expected to be uh, Sean Payton's replacement in New Orleans. I don't know exactly what that would do to Chris Richard, but maybe, you know, Allen wouldn't want him as, as a defensive coordinator. Um, it's an opportunity for him to reach out. We know Chris Richard was the defensive coordinator um, in Seattle. I believe he was a defensive backs coach in Dallas before he went to New Orleans. He's a name. Um, you could see why they would want to talk to him as well. And um, I am blanking on the one that just came up. Um, uh, uh, also from the Saints, what, uh, uh, or not for, he's from the Cowboys, Joe Witt. I'm thinking of Joe Witt Sr. was with the Saints. Joe Witt Jr. is a defensive backs coach um, with uh, the Cowboys. And Cowboys had a great defense. They, they're clearly doing a lot of things in the league that uh, are, are really, you know, boosting everything for them with the exception of the playoffs as usual. But uh, they're, they're casting a wide net. They're going to talk to a lot of people because you look at it like this. One, you need a defensive coordinator. Okay, we don't know if it's Terrell Austin. Terrell Austin interviewed with the Raiders. Maybe Terrell Austin doesn't want right. the, the structure that Mike Tomlin has set up. He doesn't want to do what the Steelers are going to do. It's nothing personal. It happens. You know, he has other options. He's looking somewhere else. The Steelers are going to let him. If Austin gets a better option and he doesn't want to be the defensive coordinator of the Steelers, the Steelers need to have somebody else ready to go. So along with that, though, it's not a coincidence that you've got uh, a shaky situation in New Orleans in the sense that Sean Payton just quit yesterday. They don't they haven't named a head coach yet. You don't know what direction the coaches are going to go. Talk to a guy that might be a free agent because you, your linebackers coach if over the last 20 years just retired. And you're theoretically you're promoting your defensive assistant overseeing the secondary. So you only have one secondary coach. They could be bringing guys in for those roles or at least talking to them because they, those opportunities might be open as well. And both Rashard and um, uh, I keep forgetting the giant Graham uh, could be out of a job. So, you know, it, it's not a bad time um, to, to interview somebody for a position in a manner that you have to, they both happen to be minor. All three of them happen to be minor, minorities. You're talking to other potential coaching ads to your staff as it sits right now with or without Tara lost. Now, it, whether that happens with Austin or not, it, it, he's the odds-on favorite. I don't think anybody, you know, really seriously thinks that they're going to hire anybody else. But if they do, it's not going to be because the Steelers don't want him. It's going to be because Austin has the situation that he likes more. And that very well could happen. Like I said, Canada interviewed for an offensive coordinator job last year before the, the Steelers hired him. So 
that could be a financial discussion. It could be a, a control discussion. It, both sides have to agree to it. You know, you, you're not like filling out a, a paper application for the job. They both need to feel like there's a fit between the two of them because there's a lot on the line for both of them. And I think the Steelers would want Austin, um, and I think Austin would do a good job. I think, too, you go into to the Raiders with a new coach, you might have more opportunity from with the Raiders to call the defense yourself, to have more influence over the defense than what he knows he's going to have in Pittsburgh. Mike Tomlin is now an 18-year head coach, okay? No different than the general manager position, Lance, like we talked about last week. Mike Tomlin is not going to cede football control to somebody they just hired. Mike Tomlin is going to take over the football duty, more or less, with, with the Steelers. There will still be a collaborative effort, but the new guy isn't coming in and calling the shots. I guarantee you right. that. And you right. wouldn't when Mike Tomlin is your coach. He's been around for two decades. Right, You're not exactly. going to take that away from him for a guy that hasn't. So I I, I see it, it's a fluid situation. I 98% think that it'll be Terrell Austin. I wouldn't be surprised, though. Jim Caldwell is a candidate in Chicago for the head coaching job there. They just hired a general manager. Uh, their head coach decision is probably coming pretty quickly. Uh, Jim Caldwell and Terrell Austin have uh, success together relationship, yeah. from Detroit. Yeah. I could see that happening, and that's reasonable. So the Steelers are just flexing um, their influence uh, over the league itself to say we're talking to these guys, and it could be they need a defensive coordinator. It could be that they need a position coach. Keep in mind, they picked up Terrell Austin the exact same way. He happened to get fired as the defensive coordinator uh, with Cincinnati with a, a pretty rough unit, and obviously things weren't working out there for him. So they, they picked him up, and he was the assistant secondary coach for a year. He's been promoted every year. So um, that that can happen. They could bring yeah. in Richard to watch over the D-backs now that uh, Austin it takes over the defensive coordinator job. And I think the one thing as we move on from Terrell Austin in the in a DC position is the one thing I think you saw with the Steelers is once he became the secondary coach, you saw the Steelers get a lot more interceptions. Um, and I don't know if it's directly due to his influence, but I know post his hire, uh, they got a lot of turnovers in the secondary. They were ball hawks because before then there was a lot of complaints about this secondary and about this defense for their inability to get turnovers and the segue this is a nice little segue into got to break in Uh, according to his twitter account ben roethlisberger has formally retired from the pittsburgh steelers and the nfl nothing that we did not know nothing we didn't expect but he left a a video message on big ben seven uh, dot com. That's his Twitter handle as well. Uh, underscore Big Ben Seven. Um, yeah, it looks like it's a pretty nice, well produced piece. I'm watching it on my phone right now. You should check it out. But um, well, that's it. Ben again, Ben has retired. Again, um, um, again, kudos to uh, and congratulations to uh, Ben Roethlisberger as he decides to do, um, you know, the next steps in life. I mean, we thought that was the case. Um, it was, you know, it was kind of a poorly veiled secret. But again, uh, congratulations to Ben Roethlisberger for the years that he's given to the Pittsburgh Steelers. So, you know, congratulations to him. Um, and, um, you know, we wish him the best. I love you so much. Um, so, parents and sister, every step of the way, your support and love. Let's switch reels. Um, never give up. 
and let's talk about to the Rooney fan. We were talking about uh, the coaching issues and the coaching situations, and you had mentioned minority coaches. And I know you wanted to talk about this before we got into the thoughts with the offensive coordinator. I want to apologize that it's taken us about 25 minutes to talk about the offensive coordinator, but it's fine. We've given you good information in my thoughts. But and one thing, I don't think that, just as an aside, I don't think it's a requirement if you're going to hire a minority coaching candidate that you have to interview a minority coaching candidate. I think that nullifies you having to interview a minority candidate. I think that was the case, but they've changed the Rooney rules subsequently in the last few years. But I think, and, uh, you know, this was an interesting week in terms of minority hires. You got the new Bears GM, Ryan Poles, uh, was hired. um, And the Vikings GM, Kwesi Adolfo Mensa, was hired. And it's being reported that uh, Byron Leftwich is in negotiations to be the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, what were your what's your thoughts on all this, Neil? Because you know, from my perspective, you know, it's a long time coming. There, there, there should have been more African American GMs uh, along the line. Um, wh- what does this say to you? Is this, you know, from the outside looking in, is this a shift in? Uh, the way things in business is going to be done in terms of opportunity uh, with African-American executives and coaches. I mean, what, what do you, uh, what's the reason for this in your opinion? To me, I think this is what it starts with. I think uh, the general manager and personnel uh, roles, the front office roles um, have been progressing better than the head coaching uh, positions have. Mostly because, in my opinion, there are simply there are more of them. You take a guy like Quasi, for example, highly educated, um, very well regarded. The dude's like my age. Okay, he has sat he sat down this morning and lost more education than I'll ever have in in areas that I flat out don't understand, let alone at the level that he's at. He has a sterling reputation, and he's he's a fast riser. He hasn't even really been in the business all that long. Teams are finding, to some degree, more colorblindness in data, analytics, uh, different approaches, innovation. So with that, I think there is a clearer floor or clear path, I should say, for minority candidates, minority executives. Now, Philadelphia has a 32-year-old female running things. She got looks as as general manager in this in this term. We're going to see more of that and less of two things really. Less recycled general managers who happen to be white males. We we're not we're not even really two full generations past um players turn coaches turn general managers. You know, we're we're not that far from that. And those players happen to be the white guys. We didn't see the black players getting coaching jobs um, after their playing days were done until kind of recently, sort of. Ozzie Newsom, I, I think, should have you know busted the ceiling wide open with the success that he had over his career. He's literally a, a, a Hall of Fame player and a Hall of Fame general manager. I, I think teams are seeing more of the value of the non-traditional football perspective. And to me, my opinion, my worldview, that's much more open and less, it, it, it's, you know, quite literally, um, it, it's about numbers, not about race. And you, you can see in other areas where 
race can be an issue because it's ambiguous and you get to decide me as a white guy, I can tell you all day, I hired the best person for the job. And it, it's, it's not without merit that perhaps you, you did hire somebody who was really qualified. The problem is when all of the people who look like me say they hired the best guy for the job and that happened to be a white male every single time it, it begs the question, what exactly the criteria are. And then you have to get into defining it. And I don't think that you can do that with an NFL head coaching position. But all of that said, it should be far more diverse than it is. It should be. It's not. So clearly there's a problem with that. The general manager level, though, I think there are plenty. And you made an excellent point yesterday when we were talking about this offline. A, a black candidate has to be immaculate. He has to be Quasi Adolfo Mensa, who is a phenomenal candidate on paper. Nobody would ha not hire this guy. I'd hire him to do whatever he wanted to do. He just looks like an excellent candidate. You don't get more educated than him. You don't have better experience than he does. And on top of that, nobody speaks ill of him at all, anywhere. You shouldn't have to be that to be a general manager, not with the general managers who are currently in charge of things in the NFL. Who are killing franchises team, every year. Yeah, yeah Trent. <laughs> Balky, Trent Balky, it, it won North Dakota State grad. Not happy about that. Trent Balky, excuse me, I don't know why I said Balky. Trent Balky, the general manager of the Jacksonville Jaguars. His fan base openly is calling for him to be fired immediately. Byron Leftwich is said to have not accepted their head coaching position because he wants Balky out, or at the very least, he wants to have the control that Balky has. He's not going to take the job if this guy's in charge. What does that tell you? Like you can't even land the head coach that you want because of your general manager. Why is he in charge? I don't know. I mean, it, it, a thousand different reasons. And I'm not saying just because Byron left, which says it, it, it makes it true, but you have to wonder after a while, especially considering bulky has failed miserably in everything else that he's done. Why was he hired as a general manager? So begs, begs the question. There are really good minority candidates. There are certainly worthy women candidates who are out there who are not going to get a job because a guy like Trent Balky continues to get recycled over and over again. It doesn't make right. sense. It doesn't make any sense to me. So that said, I think that the, the front office stuff is clearing its way a, a little bit more easily than the head coach is. Um, when you have Eric Bieniemy, uh, a, a guy that frankly fits every box of every offensive coordinator who gets a head coaching job, Nathaniel Hackett, for example, who happens to be white he led an offense that was led by Aaron Rodgers to a great deal of success. He gets a job and he's, he's been in the league for a little, a little while. He's not a, a, a you know, a young buck exactly, but the enemy who's crafted Mahomes throughout his career doesn't have a job. It, it, that should, that in and of itself should give you an opportunity to ruin a couple of franchises. Yeah, I would, I would think that's exactly <laughs> it. What are you risking here? You're risking what happens to 98% of them anyway. Why yeah. is he not getting a job? You have to ask that question. I think though, because front offices are becoming more analytical, their approaches are becoming more data science based as opposed to I'm a football guy and I know football, more positions are opening up and the methods that these, these people are using in those jobs are being recognized as successful. And that's giving them uh, enough bona fides with teams that have openings for general managers to say, you know what, I kind of like what this guy says. This is interesting. What if he was in charge of everything? What if she was in charge of everything? You, you are, are opening things up more in an open competitive playing field that you can't 
indicate is purely on race in any way. That said, yes, you absolutely still need the Rooney rule for general manager positions as well as coordinator positions along with the head coach. But we are seeing more ground being gained with the front office stuff than we are right now with the head coaching jobs. Let me list off the names of the black GMs. So let me include Ryan Poles um, as the Chicago GM. Mensa will be the Poles Minnesota. Came from Kansas City and Mahomes, by the way. Yes, yes, he did. Uh, Mensa will be the sixth black GM this year or seventh this year. Uh, so he's with the Vikings. Uh, Andrew Barry of the Browns, where Mensa came from. Chris Greer of the Dolphins. Martin Mayhew of the Washington football team. Terry Fontenot of the Atlanta Falcons and Brad Holmes of the Detroit Lions. And that's pretty impressive because I would guess that there have probably been, I'm just going to say under 20 uh, black GMs in the National Football League. And one thing I'll just push back a little bit on your point um, is in industries where soft skills are still kind of, where, where in an industry where you can't necessarily define st- you know, sort of all the skills and the skills yeah. can be soft and intangibles. As soon as you say intangibles, it lends itself to uh, racist hiring policies. I decide. It's up to you me. Know, exactly. It's up it. to me. And so, and here's the, the other thing is I love the point about analytics being a possible reason why hiring can become colorblind. But here's the interesting thing is that the NFL has always had a black intelligence issue. And it's interesting that a guy like Quasey, who has no football, I don't think he has any football background other than he didn't play. He got hired by the league. Yeah, he didn't play football. He got hired by the league. Maybe he did in high school. He was a college basketball player at Princeton. Right, that's that's the interesting point here is that um, black intelligence has not always been valued in the National Football League. Hence the fact that there were no black quarterbacks for years. And that was largely because of a perceived inability to intelligently grasp all of the concepts around offense. And on top of that, be the face of an organization. So it'll be interesting to see if black intelligence is celebrated and that happens. I think this is a great sign moving forward. Um, but ultimately, you know, to increase the number of black coaches, black GMs, so on and so forth, it's going to ultimately come at the ownership level as well. Yep. You know, you're going to have to have minorities break into ownership. And that's why you don't, and that's why when black guys get coaching jobs, they typically hire all black guys. Because hey, if, if we want to get into it, I, I, it shouldn't go without mention. It seems like there's a very specific reason Mike Tomlin is only hiring black coaches, and he has the three candidates he has for a defensive coordinator position are all black. Now, there's there is a, a, a compensatory reason to do that, but I, I kind of think that Mike Tomlin has said enough is enough here. I'm tired of being the only one here. I'm tired of anybody that needs to boost the the profile of my open coaching position with a minority is going to go after me. I I think there's a reason for that. At the same time, none of the three people I mentioned are people that should not be considered for a defensive coordinator. So you you have to look at that. 
and it's cronyism as well. I mean, yep. and also that's, that's, it's to me that's the root problem. You know, it, and, and and it's also like he knows that the black assistant coaches that he hires went through the same struggle that he did. Yep. He knows that they understand that. So he, he knows like, look, he's going to have my back. Now it may not work out, but at least we can bond on that. We know how difficult this is to do. We know the criticisms. We know all that. So when we're in a foxhole, hopefully he'll have my back just in general on that. Right. And so, and I'm sure, you know, black coaches have their network and so on and so forth. And I'm sure somebody has vouched for Graham that he knows, and he's probably has a relationship with Graham at some point in time off the football field. Yep. But let me, but let me uh, switch reels and let's talk about the offensive coordinator position, because there was a lot of chatter as we get to it in the 36 minute and there'd be no way we can get through all of this. A lot of chatter about Matt Canada. And I think Steeler Nation was very surprised that given the ineptitude of the Steelers offense that Matt Canada was brought back. I don't think we were surprised, but I think Steeler Nation was surprised. I think Steeler Nation was also surprised at the comments of Haskins and Rudolph when they kind of talked about how Ben Roethlisberger, and no shade to Ben on the day that he announces his retirement, he kind of heavy had a heavy hand on the offense, where the offense was essentially the Ben Roethlisberger offense. So let's take a step back from a very 64,000-foot perspective. In general, what is the role of the OC? Generally speaking, it, it it doesn't differ to a huge degree over the defensive coordinator, but they have to do things in a more specific way. On offense, you're attacking. You are setting the tone. Defense is reacting to everything. So defense is uh, preparing for what could happen. Offense has to be much more specific uh, about things that are going on. And the bulk of it is in protection. The offensive coordinator is uh, probably, in most places, the real second head coach of a team. There's more that they're going to do with the offensive side of the ball versus defense. And along with that, a, a reason for that is your offensive line coach tends to be, it should be, and the Steelers in, in 2021 are a great example of why this should be the case. It should be um, a, a tenured coach. It should be somebody who's been around, and it's somebody that can be authoritative. You protection matters for everybody. Nothing matters without protection. You need to know how to block things. The offensive line coach is probably just as involved in the game plan as the offensive coordinator is. Coordinator's job, though, is to make sure all of those things are coming together after laying out the plan that they have. We want to do this this week. You know, Tomlin is saying we can attack this team this way. This is what we need to do. How can we get Najee Harris into space more often? You know, I don't want to go between the tackles much because they have stud defensive linemen. How do we get him in space more? We want to attack the linebackers with this team. Matt, what can we do to, to make that happen? Get me playing. Let me stop you there, Neil. Let's let's go. Let's take it higher. Let's take it a little bit higher. Because before we get to that point, and that's a great point that you made, we often just throw around the word offense. 
So when we talk about the offense, <clears throat> is the OC in all situations the person who crafts and creates and curates the offense? So when well, yeah, you I say, mean, so when you say the offensive coordinator, what do we mean really when we say Matt Canada's offense? Is that literally Matt Canada walking into the back room <laughs> with a notebook? with 75,000 plays, and he puts it on a table and says, this is the Matt Canada offense. Okay, and let me let me answer this in, unfortunately, a, probably a frustrating way. Yes and no. One, there probably is a playbook with that many plays in it, okay? If you went to, when you went to college, if you put all of your class notes together, every class, anything that you ever had, put it into one notebook, that's what it would look like probably, right? Canada and offensive coordinators in general are alpha, type A, extraordinarily prepared people. You have to be hyper-organized to do that. They're hanging on to every scrap of paper that they ever had um, in, in an effort to continue to evolve and learn. Matt Canada, in and of himself, has a certain way that he wants to call an offensive game. But the end goal is very simple. You want to score points, okay? So in that, however you get from point A to point B is the right way to do it. It is not that that rigid, though, okay? I th What I tell people is, for, for those who have seen the movie The Waterboy, you know that, that the one domineering coach stole the notebook of magic plays from the idiot coach, right? It's not how it works. <laughs> to put it mildly, that's not how it works. It's not about the play calls. It's about what your opponent is doing against what you are doing. That means you need to be prepared for things you anticipate that they'll do. You anticipate that they won't be able to do. And that is a weekly thing. So Matt Canada's offense is not, well, we drew up these 500 plays. We can't use anything else. This is the only thing that we do. It's not that rigid. It can't be that rigid. It has to be fluid. You have to be flexible uh, when it comes to determining what you're going to do. So the concept of, Matt Canada's offense, which is something I, I hashtag on Twitter, making fun of it, it it's so completely overblown and it, it, it completely misunderstood by people. You're not understanding at all what Matt Canada is doing. Did the Steelers offense do a very good job this year? Absolutely not. Did it look very similar to the offense last year? Yep. Why is that? Because they have a quarterback who just retired. Okay. He didn't have anything left. There is not much you can do to scheme around an ineffective quarterback. It's that simple. That doesn't mean that Matt Canada just throws up his hand and gives up. He can only draw up stuff based on what they can do. Okay. A scheme does not make a player better. A scheme puts a player in, in the best position they can be uh, to, to be successful on a play. But if Ben Roethlisberger can't throw the ball 40 yards down the field, you can't call 40 yard passing plays. So take all of that out of the playbook. That's all gone. Chapters 7 through 14 of Matt Canada's offense is gone. You can't do anything. How do you replace that? Well, what do you have? Okay, what, what do you do that's good? We are an athletic receiving team. We have a decent pass-catching running back. We have a bad offensive line. We've invested a lot into our tight end position. Probably the best thing we can do is find ways to limit our poor pass protection to limit hits on our ancient quarterback who doesn't have anything left and not make him throw the ball deep down the field. If he's getting rid of it quickly in short spaces, 
What you're looking to do is catch the ball and run. So their offense is predicated on the idea that their receivers are essentially running backs. Get the ball short and go. That is not Matt Canada's offense, okay? That is the only option they have. That's not a, a – it's a scheme. It doesn't have a name. It's not a brand. It's just that's what they could do. It's the only way they were going to, to do anything. Yeah, think, Last year they, they did it and they got away with it. This year, no, it didn't work. I think the confusion is, it's like you said, that there's a notebook of plays. And I'm sure that Matt Canada has plays. You know, he has a yeah. set of plays. Yeah. However, I think we're I think we're fans, and even myself, I think you know, I've gotten confused in the past where when you say Matt Canada's offense, it just means Matt Canada is coordinating the offense. Yes. So whatever you see is Matt Canada's offense. Now, it may not be page 16, you know, in, in, in 11 personnel that he has that's called Zebra Johnny Robin X-Ray Zamba. It may not be that, but if there's an adjustment to that, it's still Matt Canada's offense. So essentially, whatever you see every Sunday when you see those 65 snaps, and sometimes for the Steelers, it'd be 45 snaps, you that's <laughs> Matt Canada's offense. You know, whatever you see is Matt Canada's offense. But explain to us how you the, the training camp aspect and, and just what Matt Canada is doing from that perspective. How, because I've been told that literally every play is run at least one time. Now, it may not be run twice. But at least it's run one time. You go through literally every play at least once, maybe twice, so on and so forth. And you may pull some stuff back that you want to use that you haven't actually run through in three months later in the year. But it's there. Everybody's run it a couple of times. You have it on practice tape. You can go back to it. You can watch it. You can see it. What's Matt Canada's role with that? Is he coordinating that as well? And that's also a part of his duties as DLC? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's He does draw up hundreds of plays. And, and to, to your point, they do drill every one of those plays during training camp, during the season. They have ones that they'll call more often than, than others, for sure. But he will have an extensive collection of concepts that they want to do for different situations versus different opponents. That's what he collects and puts together. What he's doing is watching the opponent and watching his own team and deciding what they do well, and then of what they do well, should they do against this opponent? That's part of the install as well. They will then put their, Tomlin referred to it this year, I think he said 80 plays together. You might not be able to call all 80 in a game. You might run out of plays in a game different things that you do. But I, I will tell you this, you know, when a, when a team calls a play that it's already run in a game a second time, oftentimes you see it get blown up. Um, you, you try to trick the same guy twice. It, sometimes that, that doesn't work out very well. They can figure you out what you're doing. So you have to be varied in, in what you're doing. And Canada's job is to see um, in, in which situations one thing will work versus another thing. The coordination part of it is also coaching it. You went over it once in training camp. We haven't run this play since July, but we need it against the Panthers this week. So, guys, dust off your books. It's on page 234. 
we're going to run 22 double in, in this game. Get ready for it. They'll, they'll, they plan on those kinds of things. It's the player's responsibility to learn the plays, not memorize them necessarily, but you need to know what your role is. And for the quarterbacks, they probably have to memorize it. You need to know everything that's going on um, because that that's you're only going to call what you practice. So Canada's job is to find out what they're going to run in the game by what they're going to practice that week. It's all set up earlier in the week. And in the offseason, you look at internal improvement. He's gone over every play that they've run this year. He's gone over every play that he has. He's drawn up another 300 plays, different things that they're going to do based on the personnel that he knows he's going to have next year and, and how he, from a core level, how they want to attack people. It's not set in stone is my point. His offense, it, it's, it's a question of terminology. You know, uh, some people call it, it a right-handed motion. Some people call that rip. Some people call it Richard, you know, it terminology is, is kind of what an offense is defined by. It's not the plays that you're running. They're not all uniform. You don't have the same plays for everything. It's a question of how you call it. So, you know, that if you have five codes in a play, first thing in, in map Canada's offense, the first thing indicates coverage. Second is what the running back does. I'm, I'm saying this very loosely, Third is what the tight ends do. Uh, fourth is what each receiver does. One, two, and three. It's one code. And the last one is uh, a snap count. That would be specific to Matt Canada and how he organizes an offense. And you have to be on the same page with that because that's how you call plays. You can't do that efficiently if you're not on the same page. So what Matt Canada's offense really is, it's a collection of how we group our terms into define a play. You know, in, in an Air Coriel offense, for example, 989 is a three receiver pattern, right, meaning two outs and a, and a, a, a cross. And a pulse, yeah. So they, when they say 90 rip 989 blue, that is in their offense something like our pass protection is five deep, seven step drop. You got two flies and a cross from the slot, and this the snap count is two. That's what that would mean. Not every offense does it that way. So the offense itself is more in what those codes are and having to remember them. Everybody is going to do that probably a little bit differently. It depends. It just, you think of it, if you were to write up your own code system of organization, it's going to be really hard to follow exactly what somebody else does, but it's also going to be really hard just to make it up on your own. So it, right, it comes right. from who it is that's developing it. And with that, you take things from everybody. They steal from each other all the time. Andy Reid does not call a game the same way he did when he was with the Eagles. He's evolved. He's advanced. There are people that rip off Andy Reid stuff all the time. That's how the league gets better. That, that's just simple evolution. But it's not like Matt Canada swears by the stack of, of papers that he has. These are the only things that we're doing. But at the same time, the only time you, you don't change what you have because you have to practice it if you're going to do it. I love Mel's point. An effective coach coaches the personnel strengths and coaches them up to limit their weaknesses. Work on the weaknesses unless God just haven't given them the talent to do so. Here's the interesting thing, because I think what Steeler Nation is confused with, and I'm just going to assume that the play calling or, or just tell me how much different is the play calling mechanism in game different from the off from the defense from an offense perspective. Is it kind of is that is that fluid is that communication working in a similar fashion? Or? Yeah, yeah. It's just you you probably don't have as many 
codes within a defensive call because you're really kind of operating more in a group. Um, within the group, you know that it, whatever the code would be for, say, cover three, the people who are involved in cover three all know what they need to do. Um, right. Within an offense, nowadays in particular, you're not grouping your receivers together as one thing. In fact, they, they usually have a, a bunch of option routes that are included. So it does have to be individual. Um, I would bet, and I very well could be wrong on this. If there's somebody that, that uh, doesn't agree that that's great. My thought is from what I know, um, receivers today all have their own code. So they, they hear, depending on where you're lined up and that, that depends on how your offense is run as well. But where you are, you know, if, if you are the split end, you're generally lining up on the weak side. So your position is that if you are the first in line for that code call, you're getting your signal, which is probably one of a bunch of option routes. Um, in other words, read coverage after the snap. If this guy's inside you, go outside. If he comes down underneath, you curl around him. All of that is, is coordinated as well. So on defense, though, you don't really do that as much. It, it's it, you're reacting to what the offense is doing to you. So you have to be more prepared during the play. Let's put it like this. The communication is heavier on offense before the snap and it's heavier on defense after the snap. Defense is calling plays um, as the game is as the play is going on. Defense is shouting out what somebody is doing um, a large part of. A defense's success is in-play communication. They need to be able to talk. They need to be able to read what's going on because they have to defend every blade of grass. An offense is fairly set with what it's doing beyond the option routes that I discussed. Defense doesn't have an option. You just This is your general coverage. So it, what I mean by that is it's not yeah, – is, defense yeah. is a little bit more higher level. It's a little bit more conceptual than offense, which is a, a bit more play-to-play uh, -play structured. Yeah, I get that. I I, I get that. Yeah, you, if you're going to call a coverage, you know, you've got to play the coverage. Right? You can't – there's not a ton of freelancing in that. Here's the thing that I think Steeler Nation, or at least I, I'm interested in. Um, how do you evaluate the effectiveness of a coordinator? How do you – because ultimately, and my, and my point is wins and losses first. Two, you know, points. I don't know what metrics. And I, and I want to talk about this probably a little bit more on another show. But I, but I think Steeler Nation is frustrated because you see an offense <laughs> that really wasn't good and you see a retention of a coordinator. But I think it kind of possibly goes into some of the things that you were saying because there are a lot of different details of what an offensive coordinator does. So there's different points to which they can be evaluated. There are... The trickiest thing with this, there are hundreds of different ways to evaluate any coach. Yes, it is. And what um, I was say was is, and, and I'm back. I'm sorry, I kicked myself out. Uh, <laughs> and what I was going to say was, I, I think when Tomlin is looking at the evaluation of Matt Canada, he's taking in everything. Yeah, he knows the limitations of the offense and of the personnel. Right. So I don't think as does Colbert, as does Rooney. It's Colbert. not just purely. Up yes. To like, I, I don't think they're holding it against him. And in fact, they might be looking at the offense and saying, damn, he did a well of a job with what we had. He actually, 
he actually exceeded expectations because a worse coach we would have probably not made like we would have been yeah. absolutely terrible <laughs> to be honest, if, yeah. if he wasn't uh, as good of a coach as he is so th- that's why i re- that that's why i think he was retained because i think the thing we forget is they're making the decision with all the information right they're making a decision based on the things that we don't know about. Yes, okay? absolutely. And, and I think this is a great point. And don't take this the wrong way, Double H. But if, if you think the best way to evaluate a coordinator is whether he gets hired as a head coach or not, you you don't understand what the coordinator is doing. It, it's it's not a symbiotic thing at all. I mean, it, you want certain people to lead your football team, and certainly experience as a coordinator would be a, a pretty attractive quality. You're in charge of one half of the team. And these are the results that you're getting. That makes sense. But you can be a great coordinator and be a terrible head coach. In fact, the Steelers have had a lot of those. Dick LeBeau was a good defensive coordinator. He was a bad head coach. Todd Haley was a good offensive coordinator. He was a bad head coach. We don't get to see much of what we're discussing here. We don't know what they're like dealing with the players. We don't truly know what players feel about them. Uh, All of these things come into factor. I will say this, though. Matt Canada did not get hired last year to make this a great offensive team, not with the money that the team put into it, not with the known limitations of the quarterback that it had, not with the injuries that they would eventually suffer, especially on the offensive line. This was not a one-year project. If you think that it was, your expectations are are ridiculous and you're really not going to enjoy this game very much. They needed sexy tanking, Lance. They needed more than one year. Matt Canada was built, was brought in when he was brought in to begin building the foundation of where the team wanted to go. Two things with that. Todd Haley's offense in 2012 sucked. They were not a good offensive football team. They had to play old school in order to win the, the few games that they did. 2013, a bunch of injuries killed them, but they were playing well offensively the second half of the season. You started to see it take root. 2014, they blew the F up. They were a great offensive team in 2014 and would have been again in 2015 when they were still pretty good. That's how you build. You, it doesn't just, it, it, this goes back to the video game analogy. You can't just plug in the controller and just do it yourself. There's not a magic set of plays that's better than the opponent's magic set of plays. This game is about personnel. Scheming matters, but the yes. Johnnies and Joes over the X's and O's at the yes. NFL level. That is absolutely true. I don't care what anybody says about it. It, It's usually the people who don't understand what players are doing that want to argue that scheme is above everything else. You can't just outmaneuver a a team in the NFL. Yes, it's it's, it's, You've got to have talented players to to win. And and, and I'm glad that you said that. And that's a nice way to conclude it is that it's it's about Johnny's and Joe's. I mean, you can you can. Blackboard to the field, the distance between the blackboard to the field is like California to the Horn of Africa. It's like 10,000 miles away. I mean, yep. you just, it just doesn't. I mean, yep. and the other thing is if you coached on any level, there are different skill sets required to be a head coach and a positional coach. I have learned I would be a better hitting coach, a specific thing. Because that's what my personality lends itself to. I'm not a teacher by trade. 
And I'm not an inspirational speaker by trade, right? <laughs> I, I don't inspire people to run through It's a, que- it's a question walls. of the bigger picture, right? I mean, right? It's, like, some I, people I need to be in the weeds and some people are at the 10,000 foot level. They're, exactly. they're two totally different skills. They're both necessary, right. but they're both needed. Or they're, and, they're both uh, uh, equally important in their own way. But let's do this. Before we get out of here, let's pick the uh, conference championship games. Give me your pick for the Chiefs and, and the Bengals. You want, you want to talk about offensive coordination. You watch the Chiefs. Um, from what I saw, uh, certainly in two Steelers games, what I saw last week, that offense is damn near impossible to stop. They're as well-coached, as explosive, and as structured as any offense we've seen. Um, I don't I don't think Cincinnati hangs in this game at all. Um, I, I understand that that's the easy thing to say and blah, 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 but Cincinnati played like hot dog shit last week. They really did. Tennessee just played a little bit worse. And Tennessee, I don't know what happened to them, but that was a terrible football game. Cincinnati doesn't belong at that level. They got two cupcake games back-to-back. They're not a very good team. Kansas City's going to roll. San Francisco and Los Angeles, the divisional games, they're always tough, especially in the playoffs. I think they're going to play them both conservatively, which tends to to favor San Francisco more. But I I think the Rams have – a bit more explosive element and clearly the, the the better passing game. It's hard not to pick the Rams in this. Um, I know San Francisco just beat them recently. You know, I, I said this last week too, but you know, I'm not betting on Jimmy Garoppolo on the road. Just not, I don't know what happened last week to green Bay, but I, I'm not, I'm not betting on him. Well, I'm going to bet on the Niners. Cause if I don't, my wife will kill me. She's <laughs> from San Francisco. Bang, bang, Niner gang. I'm going with the 49ers to beat the Rams for seven consecutive times and there's something to be said about that because the coaches are similar and the personnel similar um so i'm going with bang bang niner gang and i'm going for the chiefs to absolutely (laughs) blow the doors off the bungles uh and 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 the titans should have ran the titans should have run foreman more chris henry wasn't effective when they ran foreman they looked different but ryan Tannehill. and let me say one thing before we get out of here Steeler Nation is is, is is really upset about Mason Rudolph potentially being the quarterback next year. We'll, <laughs> and we'll talk more about that. But Steeler Nation, uh, and big up to my guy, and big up to my guy, John Asuncion, who chimed in with the Bang Bang Niner gang. Big up J.A. You know who you are. And um, but I, I think the Steelers would be would be more pissed off if they paid big money for Ryan Tannehill. Can you imagine the fan base if you were paying uh, Ryan Tannehill what the what the Titans are, and he comes out and throws an interception on his first pass? I mean, are you and, kidding? And me? his last, keep that in mind. And, and his last, he opened the book and closed the book with turnovers. Bang, bang, Niner gang. That's so I'm going game. with. I am going with a rematch of the 49ers and. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs with the Chiefs ultimately winning another Super Bowl. And if you're a, and if you're a 49er fan, you've got to be happy uh, that you've dragged Jimmy Garofalo possibly to a Super Bowl. So that means the transition to your guy, North Dakota State's own Trey Lance, should be not as bumpy as people think. And also there has been a request from Double H that you must wear the beanie every single show. Minnesota North Stars forever, baby. <clears throat> yes, sir. I agree. It won't be every show. I'm hot right now. <laughs> 
you're hot. Just go outside. You'll cool off. Really <laughs> exactly. Just crack the window for five seconds. Just crack the, the window. But with that, <laughs> listeners, we're going to hop off the program. I want to thank everybody for hopping on. And big up to my guy, John Asuncion. Bang, bang, Niner gang. It should be an awesome weekend of football. Uh, I know my mom is probably the only person that's upset because she lives very close to SoFi and she's getting a championship <laughs> game and the Super Bowl They're in two all, weeks. All Niners fans there too. And she's gotten like 25 straight weeks of football and she's yeah. about tired of it because she's tired of not being able to do anything on Sundays. But with that, we're going to get out of here. And as always, tune in, tell a friend and subscribe.